Nothing looms larger than the Father. My father told me that. Whether he was referring to his father or himself remains an open question. On September 29, 1947, the day Dizzy Gillespie played his first concert at Carnegie Hall, my father came roaring into this world with his umbilical cord wrapped tightly around his throat, like a noose or the hand of a strangler. When he was a child, his father gave him a naval Rorschach test, and the results were so off the wall that my grandfather accused him of deliberately sabotaging his research. Since then, my father has lived much like he arrived in this world, raging against it, great waves of strife punctuated by moments of rapturous joy. But whatever his failings, he gave me one indestructible gift, the knowledge that I was deeply and unshakably loved. When I saw David Sibb's film, Bad Axe, it was in certain ways like looking in the mirror. In his father, I recognized my own. In his sister, I saw the souls of my daughters. It is a movie about a family ripped apart and bound together by the pandemic. It is a film about what it means to be an American. When people look back on the strange days we've all lived through recently, this is the film they should watch to know what it was like. Without further ado, I give you a conversation with David Siv. David, welcome to the show. So glad to have you here. Yeah, thank you so much. Very excited to be here. Um, I have to tell you, I thought this is one of the best movies I've seen in a long, long time, and maybe one of my favorite movies ever. And I oh my never <laughs> say that. I was blown away. Wow, that uh, that very high praises. That really means a lot to me. Thank you. You know, and it's I think, and I and I use the word movie consciously because uh, I'm not sort of calling this a, I mean, it, obviously it is a documentary, but it, it's so cinematic and it's so, um, the, the performances that, or the authenticity of your portrayal of your family and the people that you love just came shining through in this so brilliantly and beautifully. And I literally had like tears pouring down my face as I finished the movie. And I like laugh my ass off in the middle of it when, you know, they're, they're, your dad's out there with the, yeah. teaching the guys the gun, your mom comes <laughs> crashing out. Like the, the range of, of, of kind of tones and the humanity to it and the, unexpected depth of it it just it it just absolutely blew me away so so first and foremost i just want to say like you are a phenomenal monstrous talent and i'm so glad you're in the world and making making films man oh man thank you that that means a lot to me i mean you you put your heart and and soul and blood sweat and tears into something that's just so personal and when it finds a way uh into you know other people's hearts it it's the best feeling in the world. So really, I, I appreciate all the really kind words. Thank you. Tell me the story of how this movie comes to be um, and kind of, I guess, start even well before the movie in terms of your trajectory that leads you to this and, you know, your knowledge that you're a filmmaker and, and the path that leads you to this movie. Rewind all the way back. All the way back. Yeah. So, you know, grew up in, in Bad Axe, Michigan. 
um, for, you know, the time I was uh, four years old till uh, till 18 when uh, I graduated uh, from Bad Axe High School. And around this time, actually, um, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with my career. I didn't know. I didn't even know if I wanted to go to school at all. Um, obviously, you know, you get a sense of who my dad is where that was not an option. Um, but that senior year in high school, there was a, actually a film that was uh, being shot in Bad Axe, Michigan, of all places, uh, by Paula Sorrentino uh, called This Must Be the Place. And um, Sean Penn uh, starred in that movie. And um, I remember this was like during the really tough times uh, when the restaurant was, it wasn't busy. We were really struggling to keep our doors open. And when this movie began shooting in Bad Axe, um, Sean Penn would come into the restaurant and it started to become like this chatter around town of, oh yeah, he, he likes to go eat at that Rachel's place. You know, like he's, if you go at the right time, you know, you could find, you can find Sean Penn there. And Sean was such a great guy to our family. Um, we, we've had dinner with him on several occasions and he brought me on that movie set for the first time. And, you know, I'm a 17 year old kid, uh, pretty directionless. And it just opened up my entire world. They ended up putting me like as an extra on it. I got like my own close up and everything. And, you know, as, as a small town kid, it's just like, wow, like this is, it just, it, it, this is a world of movie making. So I decided to, you know, when I graduated, I was lucky. I, I, I got into the University of Michigan. My dad was very happy. I decided to go to school. Um, and then when I told him I wanted to pursue film, I think he, you know, he probably wished I would have uh, cho chose something else like being a doctor or a lawyer. Of course, um, of course. But he, he was like, you know what? I did make it. I did promise you that if you ended up going to, to school, you can study what you want as long as you get a degree. So, um, so I got into, I got into filmmaking and, and spent, uh, you know, my, my years there studying, uh, you know, film school and production and all of that. And, once I graduated, I moved out to Los Angeles and that was like, you know, the beginning of my career. Worked as an intern, uh, spent four years working as an assistant to um, director Jeff Tremaine, uh, who, you know, he's creator of Jackass and, and a lot of those crazy MTV shows, but uh, learned so much from my years of working with him. Uh, worked on everything with him from commercials to scripted movies to, you know, prank movies. It, it was uh, it was such a fun experience because the type of set and crew he runs, it's they're usually pretty small. And, you know, while I was intimate. the assistant, yeah, it's very intimate. So, you know, he's like, do you know how to use a camera? And I lied, you know, I, I didn't really, but absolutely I, be, be, beyond like, you know, a small DSLR, like, you know, my, my Canon camera. So, you know, I would be hiding in the back of vans and, and shooting this stuff, you know, shooting this hidden camera stuff while also like still rolling phone calls at the same time. Cause I'm, I'm the assistant. There is such a small team. Um, but working with my years, working with Jeff, he, you know, while, while bad acts is, you know, very far, um, I guess tonally uh, and you know thematically from what he does, there was so much I took away from my years of working with him. I mean, just the independent uh, filmmaking spirit and the how collaborative he is as a director. Um, it was when I came to the end of you know I think four and a half years of working for him. This was in 2019, so right before the pandemic. Uh, 
I decided, you know, my, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, um, we were doing long distance. She was living in New York and New York was the place where we always wanted to, to end up. So, um, I finished my time working with Jeff, moved to New York, um, began working, you know, as a freelance camera operator, um, taking any directing gigs I could get doing commercials and, and corporate videos and stuff like that. Um, we signed a lease on our apartment in February, 2020. We're living together. We're living the New York life. Pandemic happens. Cue the pandemic, right. Cue the pandemic, um, which, uh, you know, it upended everyone's world and uh, ours was no exception. And, you know, for us being, I think what I was 26 at the time and um, I'm 29 now, but being 26 and like so many young adults, I just wanted to be with family and, you know, mm -hmm. my, my girl, my wife and I, we always joke that like, if, if anything was ever to go wrong in the world, like if New York city were to collapse or if there's a zombie apocalypse, we're going to bad ax Michigan because dude, I want your dad in my corner. I would want your dad <laughs> in my corner. What, what an amazing, amazing character. It's, it's, it's the middle of nowhere. Uh, my dad, you've seen him. He, he has a, a very wide range of firearms. And so, you know, it was like, okay, we're, we're going to be in bad ax. Uh, we're going to be with my family and, you know, hopefully this will pass through in a couple of weeks and we'll come back to New York. Obviously not the case at all, but, um, but when I, that first day I came back from New York to Michigan, it was like mid March or early March, I, I take my camera out and I begin filming. And this wasn't something that was, was new to what I did in my family because I've always loved bottling them in memories through photographing them and filming them. And, you know, there was this foresight the, the film started off as two things. I mean, one of them, it, it was like, you know, just these home videos and sort of this foresight of like, it's an interesting time we're living in. And mm -hmm. I just want to be able to document all of this and, and have memories of this. But then there was this part of me as well, too, that um, when I, you know, went to college and began studying filmmaking and made my first short film. I always knew I wanted to share my family's story because when I look at my parents, you know, a Mexican American woman, um, my mom, and then, you know, my dad, a, a Cambodian refugee who came to this country in 1979 with only the shirt on his back. You know, these were two hardworking and passionate individuals that decided of all places to, um, raise a family and start a business in Bad Axe, Michigan, and had to overcome so much adversity. You know, it, times were really tough for us. I mean, there were so many times where we thought the donut shop was going to close. Mm -hmm. um, we had to adapt, change it into a restaurant. And even then, it's it struggled for so many years. Um, the, the first time we really started seeing business was um, was shortly around that time that Sean Penn started coming in the restaurant because that was a time when my oldest sister, Jacqueline, had just graduated um, or was going to graduate from school and uh, was, you know, having a full time job and being able to like reinvest into the restaurant for the first time. So while I was, you know, going to college and um, and beginning, you know, my career and my path into filmmaking, this was also sort of like when the restaurant was just for the first time, um, I guess, like on the heels of like almost starting to, to turn around. Uh, granted, it, it took a very long time, but 
but anyways, I mean, looking back at this whole history of the restaurant and, and our family and, uh, you know, at our roots being an immigrant family, I look at my, my parents' story and like, that's the American dream story, you know, a, a family coming together, working together and overcoming so much adversity and being able to, to find success, you know, in their lives and in this community. So that was a story I always wanted to share. Well, it's so it's so striking, I think, as a film, because it's like, you know, there's the old Flannery O'Connor adage of through the particular comes the universal. Right. By being yeah. kind of like mm -hmm. relentlessly local, uh, you know, two bad acts in this case, it, it becomes this um, incredibly universal story of what it means to be an American, to be a father, to be a son, to be a daughter, to be a family. And, uh, and I guess the universality of it, I think, it, I think it's so important, this movie, particularly right now at a time where we're living in this culture where everybody's yelling at each other and nobody's yeah. listening. You know, nobody's even really talking. It's just these kind of like atomized experiences. And, and it's sort of like I felt, you know, as, you, as your movie ended, kind of whoever you are or whatever your politics are, you were going to recognize yourself in this movie because of the like striking, profound, you know, humanity to it. So, um, and your sisters, of, I mean, all the characters, you know, in your family and, and the way you have portrayed them, um, because I know, you know, the, the art and craft of documentary is you are eliciting performances, then you are sort of capturing them, then you are shaping them in the edit. So, yeah. um, you know, I know what all, you know, uh, the, 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 the painful, laborious, uh, you yeah. know, endeavor that goes into it. But um, when does it go or how does it go from, okay, this is a fascinating moment in my life and in, in my history to, okay, this is a movie. Okay. I know what this yeah. movie's about and, and sort of what's the spine and what are the conflicts and sort of talk about the evolution of the, of, the, right. of the film as it unfolds for you. Right, right. Exactly. Cause you know, like I said, I, I always wanted to share my family's story. It, it didn't occur to me that this American dream story I always wanted to share was actually unveiling itself right in front of me in the form of documentary filmmaking until it was right after that Black Lives Matter movement happened in Bad X. Because this was a time when, you know, you seen the film, um, how anxious and scared our family is about attending this this local Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, as you see, we decide to go. Um, and then the film kind of takes this turn. Our story takes this turn where as a result of using our voice in our community that we thought we were, you know, truly a part of and established ourselves in, there become these consequences of, oh, you actually are not allowed to speak up. Like you, we, you actually shouldn't speak up about this stuff. Like we're, we're not going to support your business anymore because we heard this family supports Black Lives Matter. Um, that's when I began editing was when this first wave, I guess, of community um, backlash started to, to, we started to see the results of us using our voices for the first time. And, right, and like in, in terms of filmmaking, suddenly you've got conflict, right? I mean, like and, you have the stuff of drama. Right. Exactly. There, there becomes this new conflict because, you know, in the film, like, yes, the, the pandemic is, is a conflict in the sense where the restaurant is being is being challenged again. And, you know, there are these um, 
anxieties about what what might happen if we if we close. But then there's this new conflict, this this conflict with, I guess, the outside world uh, begins to take form. And that's within our own community of bad acts. Um, and, you know, you, you we spend almost two decades in this community feeling like we're part, you know, we're part of it and that we should be able to have a voice just like anyone else. But then when you start getting, um, you know, comments on social media of people telling you they're not going to support you anymore, you start getting letters telling you to go back to Cambodia. Um, you get, uh, you know, threatening phone calls from white supremacists and neo-Nazis. Um, you begin to, to question your your place in the community and then for me it was around then where it's like well like, no like our family's stories and our experiences and our voice it it deserves a, a platform and bad acts just like any other family um we deserve to be looked at as american and our experiences as being uh as american as just as any of our neighbors in this community and that begins to be challenges what is what does it even mean to be american you, you yeah. see that in that letter in that opening scene traditional american values what does that mean you're talking about you know the person who ever wrote that letter we still don't know to this day they're talking about their ideas of traditional american values but that's not everyone's idea of traditional well american and, values. and the weird thing about that is I think what's so humanizing about the film is your family's experience explores very traditional uh, sort of family values, right? In, in a sort Thank of you. fundamental identifiable sense that like whatever the sort of misperceptions of like, oh, I'm going to brand those guys as other or what. It's like, no, this is exactly what it means this to be is, an American. This is the American experience. That's, that's what, you know, that's why I say the Black Lives Matter was sort of this catalyst because it it began to make me realize like wait like my family's story is important because it is part of the american experience what we've been through these past you know two decades of being in bad acts and now going through in the pandemic you know the pandemic is something everybody was going through um it, it doesn't matter where where the heck you were in the united states it, it, you know this was this was such a, a universal experience but you're seeing it through such a personal lens of, of that being my family. And that's when I knew that this American dream story, uh, you know, the American dream was being challenged all over again. Uh, something that we fought so hard to build in this country uh, was finding its new way for us to, to go against, you know, a pandemic, racial reckoning, uh, a very divided community, right? Like these were all things that were challenging the American dream. So it became very clear that this story had to be told with the backdrop of 2020, everything that was going on, uh, because now we have to fight for our, our identity and our American dream, you know, harder than we ever did before. Well, two, two things, uh, two ideas I want to explore with you. One is, you know, I've seen, you know, you've seen all the work that everybody's, you know, their pandemic movies or the pandemic books sure. or, you know, sort of what, what everybody has, you know, what the artists have gone and done. And to me, and, and there's been brilliant work, you know, Ethan Hawke's, you know, Paul and Joanne doc on HBO was amazing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, th there's a long list of amazing work that's been done. But th your film, like, I feel like, okay, do you want to know what it was like to be alive in America at this time, like it is a, a, this amazing time capsule of what that experience was like and all the sort of collisions and, and, and sort of divisions, you know, that are roiling the country. And 
The other idea I want to explore with you is um, those outside pressures and collisions also and the fault lines that exist in America, right? Whether to wear a mask, whether you're pro-Trump or anti-Trump, what you know, all, all the sort of things that all of us have been through, like it also exposes the fault lines in your family. Um, you know, there's sort of you as an outsider, you know, there's that sort of powerful scene where your mom's like, you don't live here, David, you know? And, and, and it's like this bracing kind of moment where, you know, we recognize you are out, you know, you have, um, escaped your childhood and you are on your path. And yet here you are kind of, you know, documenting it and being a part of it. And then, you know, the fault lines between, your father and your sister, um, and, 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 um, and how everybody reckons with that. And, and so I guess in terms of the filmmaking and scene construction of it, you're shooting, how much are you shooting? Are you shooting sort of every day all the time? Is it just you that's shooting? Like what's the apparatus that's sort of capturing this? Um, and, um, how much are you cutting as you go and how much are you involved in the cutting or passing it on to editors to have a little bit more distance? What's the process? Yeah, that, so that process, it it started off, you know, during those early days of the pandemic, just me filming, um, really when I thought something interesting was going on. Um, so maybe I would film three hours a day, maybe I'd film an hour a day, whatever it was, you know, it, 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 it just started off as, you know, um, I'm going to, I'm going to turn my camera on when I feel like there's something interesting going on. Um, I think where that sort of shifts and evolves was that moment that, oh, I think I might have a movie here, which I mentioned was after the Black Lives Matter movement. Then it goes into filming, you know, pretty much every day, all the time. You're not just, you're not just filming, uh, you know, you are filming the nuance, but um, you're also filming, you know, I guess like you begin looking for a story and you start asking more and more questions. And I think that's when, uh, I, I really began to, you know, take on that approach. Uh, and that's what was also the same time we began editing and the way we began editing, um, it started off with, you know, me with probably, I don't know, I want to say 50 to 75 hours of footage and, uh, I passed that on to a friend who who was helping me edit, um, Peter Wagner, and I said, "You look, Peter, can you go through this footage? Um, this is everything up until what happened at the Black Lives Matter movement last week. Um, I just want you to, you know, put together like a ten hour timeline for me of of all these best moments that you can find, and you know, gave some input of here's what I remember happened on this day and this day. You know, uh, just just try to string something together, just as a as a you know." cutting that 70 hours down to like something eight to 10 hours. Uh, He came back to me with that and, you know, included some music and there was no story there. It's just, you're just watching, you know, day to day, you know, cut together. And this is where I began the writing process. Um, Writing was something I've always loved doing and my way of approaching, I guess, the first act of this film, you know, getting the wheels going in the edit room was looking at this 10 hour timeline he had put together for me and I, I wrote a script. I wrote a script based on the 10 hours of footage that I saw. I, and I didn't know how documentaries were made. I, I knew how storytelling was done and more of a narrative approach. So I literally wrote like 
I think like a 25 page script with like slug. Yeah. With like scene description, you know, like I, I don't know if other documentary filmmakers do that, but this was my approach to it. And I would, you know, for every scene heading or for every slug line, I would put like clip numbers and that way he knew exactly like where to pull from. And once we, you know, once I gave that back to him, that's when it like things began to take shape. Um, he took those 25 pages of scripts I had and he, he pretty much cut me like the first 25 minutes of the film. Um, and it was at that point where life was just getting more interesting with every day that was going on and we would edit and shoot simultaneously. I think, you know, every three or four days I would send back footage and I would say, Hey, you know, let's, uh, this important moment happened. Let's maybe try and go back to, you know, early on in the edit and see if there's a way to tie this in. So, you know, it, it, it becomes like this shooting and editing process at the same time. Um, we do this all the way until the election. Um, but cause by the time the election comes around, like a week after the election happened, we had like our first cut because we were just mm -hmm. editing simultaneously. Yep. Yep. And you know, I would, I would cut together scenes in, in premiere and, and send them back to him. He, he would put his magic on it. So it was very collaborative in that sense. Um, and at this point we had no money. Um, we that's had... what I was, that was my next question. So like, as you go, you know, you've, it's, you know, after the Black Lives Matter protest, you cut a, you know, reel or whatever that you're going to go try to fundraise with. And, and right. so like, and you begin to get a rough cut of the movie, you know, as you say, coming up it's... to the election, like what is the, um, what's the behind the scenes process of like, okay, how, like, is this really a movie? How do we get money for it? How are we going to get it into the world? Talk, talk about that. Yeah. So, you know, grant writing and, and all that, that's something that they don't teach you in film school, which right. to documentary and independent filmmaking, it's absolutely crucial. It's, it's almost like writing college essays all over again. So, um, so around this time when I'm shoot when I'm not shooting and I'm, you know, not working at the restaurant, I'd be researching grants, writing, you know, my proposals up, just thinking like, I know there's a real movie in here. We have this, we have this sizzle reel that I feel is very strong, you know, applying to Sundance, uh, the labs and all, not the labs, but the, uh, the grants and all of that. Um, you don't hear anything back, which can get really discouraging. We're like, well, is this actually only good in my head or, you know, is right, there something right. actually here? It's, know, a, it's, it, a, it's a, it's a lonely business. It's a lonely business because you, you put so much work into sending stuff out there in the world and, and you don't hear much back. Um, but I, I knew I needed to build a team of producers. And luckily I had my, my wife at the time who was the first producer on board. And um, uh, she, she also works in the entertainment industry. That's her, that's her background. So um, we, we really tackled this together when we decided that, you know, this was going to be a movie. And I remember the first person who I reached out to after the sizzle reel was done um, was Diane Kwan, um, who she's a fantastic documentary producer um, has a really big heart for for personal stories and first time filmmakers. She she produced Minding the Gap, which was nominated for an Oscar. Great film, I think yep. in twenty eighteen. Yeah, and and I loved Minding the Gap. And you know, I said, you know what, I'm gonna try reaching out to uh, to Diane because she seems like someone who has great instincts in story and uh, is willing to listen to first time filmmakers and hear them out. And sure enough, she got back to me right away. And uh, that was be the beginning of that partnership with her. Um, and she do you come show on board. her a cut? Do you show her the reel? What do you show her? I show her the reel. I show her the reel. And we just, we, I remember we just chatted. Uh, this was like probably in, um, 
gosh, I think July, 2020. So this was even before we even put this sizzle reel out there. Um, but we just, you know, she just told me to stay in touch. And by the time we had our first rough cut done, you know, around November, that's when I sent it to her and she gave notes. And, and at this time it was very informal. It wasn't, it wasn't like she was a producer, you know, officially a producer, but she was definitely acting in that capacity, giving advice and, uh, reading over grant material, looking at the rough cuts. Um, so, you know, all of the, all of that is going on while we're continuing to shoot and we're continuing to edit. We're just trying to find the funding to do this. Um, and the first funding we get is actually through that crowdfunding campaign that mm -hmm. actually becomes a, a, a major plot point, you know, mm -hmm. uh, of contention in the community when we decide to put this out there. It, it takes on this meta approach where you get to get a sense of a little bit of the behind the scenes that's going on in the making of this film. And that's us trying to raise, you know, asking the community of Bad X to help us support this film so we can make it happen. And what ends up happening as a result of that um, is the widespread backlash towards uh, towards the restaurant and towards the film. Um, you know, the phone calls from the Nazis. That's when all of that begins to unfold. And it happened really quickly. It was like in a matter, I feel like, of from the time we put the fundraising trailer out there to all this backlash. It was like a week. like, And that was like just a, a crazy week of filming. Um Thankfully, the community of Baddocks really did rally behind it for the most part. And uh, we did end up making that first initial goal of raising $40,000. Um, but, we, you know, it, it's unfortunate when there's so much positivity and support. We yeah. did we did have to put up with all of that negative backlash. And, you know, at times negative voices speak louder than, than they need to. And you see that, you know, in the film, you see how we begin to react to that. And um, your dad speaks very sort of profoundly and beautifully to that at the end of the movie, just in terms of like, you know, the the horrors of hatred, you know, as he experienced, right. you know, um, in Cambodia. And, and it's um, so I want to drill into two things with yeah. you, because there's a couple of interesting a number of really interesting choices you make, which is when to include yourself in the narrative and when not to. You know, it begins in this sort of like observational kind of direct cinema, third person, you know, yeah. and the only kind of, you know, uh, hint of your, um, you know, sort of whisper of your presence is, you know, in the lower thirds that appear, you know, my sister or whatever. And then, right. you know, there you have, you make a series of, of, of choices at these sort of pivotal moments to spin the lens around and to include yourself in it and, and kind of, um, talk about like where, you know, those decisions and where you find that in the edit, you know, did you know you were going to do that? Did you know you were going to include it? You know, talk about that. Yeah. I, I did not think I would include that at all. I, um, it, even, even when I began editing, I, I thought this would just be more observational and not really a, a voice behind the camera, you know, uh, motivating it in that sense. Um, Luckily, you know, my wife uh, did shoot that footage of me back, you know, I think it happens in April where she turns the camera on me. She's like, we need to know like what the filmmaker is thinking. And I legitimately did not think we were going to use that footage. So, you know, I kind of yep. blew it off. I and, wondered, I wondered, it, I wondered. No, no, it's, I, I legitimately, she's because she's like, no, she's like, we, we need to turn the camera on. Like, you know, you're capturing all this great footage about your family, but like, what is, what is going on in your mind? And I didn't think anything of it because I, I already thought like, no, there's no way I'm going, you know, if this does end up becoming a film, I'm, I'm not going to be a part of it. But 
those choices to begin including that um did not begin to happen until we had our first rough cut um something was missing from that first rough cut mm -hmm. and i I remember it was around this time, um, Diane's like, you know, you should talk to, you should talk to Bing and Bing Liu who, who directed Mining the Gap because um, the way he's included in the narrative in that film, it's, it's so beautiful and, um, and intentional. Mm -hmm. And I remember talking with Bing and asking him how he came to, you know, that revelation himself. And the word he did end up leaving me with was intention. And I think what was missing in these this first cut of the film with me not being in there um, was why is this story being told? Um, what is the motivation for for the person telling this movie? And I and I you know that's when it, it sort of this light bulb comes off and it's well, it's, it's the love I have for my family and, and wanting to share their story. That's, that's why I say I've always wanted to share their film. Cause I, I just have so much love for, for what we've been through and the resilience we have and the bond we have together. And that, that feeling, that emotion wasn't coming through in the edit at all. So I'm like, okay, let's begin to look at and see what does this feel like if, there is this presence of myself being there and we slowly begin to experiment. You know, we find this interview footage that I honestly didn't think there was anything in there and there was mm -hmm. just enough in there to peel back one layer. Yep. And then you begin to look for more of those moments, you know, like the very, like the, the second scene of the movie when my dad's showing me pictures and, mm -hmm. you know, yep. I tell my mom, like, you know, who's making noises it's those little moments you begin to include more and more that your presence. Yep. The yep. presence. And, and it's, and it's, and I wanted to do it in a, such a subtle way. I'm like, I do not want this to be a voiceover movie where like, this is my family and, you know, and, and don't, don't be wrong. Some films do that and they, and they work great, but I, I just did not think this was this type of, uh, this type of film. I, I didn't want it to be about me at all. Um, I think what what I could offer to the story was this this intention, this motivation to share it. And I think by including that, that's why the film feels so raw and intimate is because um, you are somewhat aware in, in I think a very beneficial way of who is behind this camera. Oh, mm -hmm. that's the little brother, that's the son. And he's, He's looking for a way to to share his family's story, and again, this is all motivated. You know, this is all motivated out out of the love I have for them. So it, it began with very little steps and and finding the right ways to include it. And you know, when we had our first cut of the film, um, I'll be honest and say that the direction I was taking the story in, I, I began to lose track of why I. I began to lose track of that intention of that motivation. Um, I think I personally was so, was so angry and upset with where mm -hmm. our country was at. And um, those feelings of frustration, I think began to reveal itself in the edit to that, that first cut. Spun your very, compass. Yeah. I spun my compass. I, I, I think I very much was like, you know what, I'm going to make a film that's saying this bigger thing about America and everything that's wrong with it. And 
that just wouldn't have been right. I think that would have resulted in a film where it would be me preaching to the echo chamber. It and... becomes polemical instead of personal if you do it that way. hundred percent. And I think the line that you walk so beautifully in this is all of those, you know, the righteous rage and all of the feelings of just like, what the fuck is going on in this country, you know, and in the, in the world right now, it, they're there, but they're kind of, um, they're not center stage, the family center stage. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's, it, and that's, you know, and I think that's where, um, when I began to include myself in the edit and there was that moment where I say, this is a love letter to bad acts. I don't think I truly know knew what I meant when I said that. I I think that was a knee jerk reaction to um, to being scolded at by your father, you know, mm-hmm. like like and wanting to um, defend your actions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I'm so glad the camera was on during that moment. My my I think I think at this point my wife had this mm-hmm. this Vision. was again this was intuition. this was bef- this was this intuition yeah where this was before. Um, I even wanted to include myself in the edit. And so finding those moments and at the end revealing that, oh yeah, this is a love letter to Bad X because it's it's made our family for all we are. It's in a, you know, it's an unconditional love. Um, but it's also a love letter to family. And that's where I think it became so important for me to have my voice and to have my presence included in the film. Because in order to talk about the issues I wanted to talk about. Um, it had to come from the most personal place. It had to come from a place where um, that unconditional love I'm talking about for bad acts, you see it through within the love I have for my family. Yeah, We're imperfect. We're not, you know, the film does not paint anyone to be a saint, you know, myself included, because my mom is right when she turns to me and she says, David, you don't live here, you know, and and she's right because at the end of this, I get to go back to New York, and they have to put up with with the consequences, with the hangover of everything, um, and so you know, I I think by coming from a place that uh, of of so personal and out of love, uh, an unconditional love, I was able to talk about all those issues I wanted to speak about, but in a way of showing and not telling, um, in a way that humanizes these issues where when people watch this, they're not looking at that as, Oh, that's that liberal, uh, Asian Mexican family, you know, that owns that restaurant. They're looking at it as, Oh no, like they, that's Chun and Rachel. Like they, they're members of our community, just like us. And they have their own issues just like us. Granted, they're much different, but, um, this was their personal journey that entire year. And this is what, What's this is what bad access of them. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's the profound vulnerability of everybody, and, you know, the sort of your willingness to show the like imperfections and the arguments and the tears and the recriminations, you know, it's what is so it's like you're looking at it makes any of us feel like, oh, I'm, I'm looking at my family. I'm looking at myself. You know? Exactly. People people have found a way to see themselves in us in in their own way like you mentioned whether it's seeing themselves in my dad or myself or or Jacqueline right it um it humanizes right it, it humanizes these issues and and people uh can see their own vulnerability you know through what everything that you see playing out on screen and through our story so it, it became really important to show that and 
and I don't know if that would have been the case had I not included myself and and had I I tried to a different approach, you know, with um with making a film that was coming out of um anger and frustration versus, you know, love showing the, the unconditional love. Yeah. So I have two more questions for you, which is um, you know, as you because it's a lonely business, you know, making these films and then you put it out into the world and then it's kind of no longer yours. It, you know, belongs to, belongs to the world now. Right. But, but there, there are stages in that. And one is, you know, when did you screen the movie for your family for the first time? And what was that experience? I, I actually screened them that first, that first rough cut that we had, um, the one after the election, uh, uh, the rough cut, the one that they told me that, yeah, this is not the movie you <laughs> you can make. Um, I actually kept my family very involved throughout the editing process. Um, there was this trust that was already established, obviously being a member of the family when it came to shooting this movie. There was another level of trust that had to be earned through editing this movie. Because it's mm -hmm. one thing to, you know, shoot hours and hours, hundreds of hours of 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 home videos of your family. It's another thing when you begin to break that down and craft it into a 102 minute feature film where there's these characters with their own arcs and journeys and flaws. And, and, you know, so I, I would never have put this movie out there if, um, if they weren't all on board with it. So I had to keep them involved in the editing process. And I'm glad I did because after I showed them that, that first rough cut, they were the ones that kept questioning me, like, why are you making this in the first place? And it left me with months to, to ponder on that where it really came down to wanting to to share our story and, and you know, this message of love that it had to come from. Um, had they not been involved, you know, I hope I would have gotten to the, the film to the place where it was, but it I can't say you. that. I, I can't yeah, say that for you. sure. Yeah, it really, yeah. it very much challenged me because th this film I is one that really came together as a family. I even to this day putting it out there and being on the road and promoting it. Right, this was something we all did as a family. It's it's like we it's like everything at the restaurant. It, everything we've been able to succeed. Right, it's it's been together as a family, and this this film is no different. Um, and by the time I had my final cut, you know, at this point, everyone is giving their notes. You, I have a very opinionated family, as you see. Um, you can probably imagine my dad had different notes than, than Jacqueline. I'm and, sure. You know, I'm sure. I, sh I shudder to imagine the cognitive yeah. <laughs> dissonance in your head, getting notes from everybody. And it's it's frustrating because, you know, it, it, at times it feels like um, it, it it feels like while I was trying so hard to, to um, uh and, you know, listen to and, and be trustful of them. They had to be trustful of me. And it, it took a lot of work to get there because you can't listen to every person's notes nope. at the end of the day. You just can't. But I will say that um, by having everyone involved in the edit, you you take a little bit of something from every single person. Uh, and I really mean every single person. Um where it, it it takes that it, it begins to take a, a life of its own in a way where oh it, it needed to have it needed that familial love in the editing room to to bring it to life and, and get the cut to where it was so by the time we had our final cut um i think i think there were still some anxieties about the film and, and rightfully so um i think that would have been the case with whatever however the cut would have been but i will say they were lessened and by the time we showed the film i think everyone was like 
I, I earned, I earned, right. I fully earned that, that you, trust. You, you, earned, yeah. you earned their trust, right? You, yes. you, you, mm-hmm. You've done them justice. What about screening it in bad acts? Did you, did you have, have you had the sort of like, you know, public screening open to whoever wants to show up and either clap or, you know, throw tomatoes or whatever they want to do? What, what was what's no, that ab- process? Absolutely. That, that process was uh, terrifying. Over, you know, the, the movie opened up um, uh, November 18th. So right over Thanksgiving break, um, where everyone in Bad Axe, you know, they're coming home from their college towns and uh, the movie is playing at the local theater during this time. It, you, you go into the Bad Axe theater and it, it says, David Sibbs, award-winning uh, feature film, Bad Axe. And it's it's just there for two weeks. Um, I decided to go home during Thanksgiving. I, I, I usually spend it uh, in LA with my wife's family, but I decided to make the trip home on Thanksgiving day. And uh, spend four days in bad acts and attending, uh, I would just come in and pop in and do random Q and A's. And the response was truly incredible. And, and, you know, not only from the people who genuinely supported the film from the beginning and was very happy to see this story come to life, but most surprisingly from the people on the opposite end of this, the people Mm -hmm. that were skeptical of it. Um, and I say like, these are the same exact individuals that, were leaving social media comments and stopping my mom in Walmart and telling her they weren't going to support the restaurant anymore because of what I was doing. Um, these people showed up to these screenings every day I was there. And the most powerful experience I think I've taken away from from being on the road and uh, just all the excitement has been behind the film has actually been those days in Bad Axe because at every screening, at least one person in the room um, raised their hands and said something along the similar lines one way or another. They said, I'm going to be honest. I do not agree with your family's politics, but thank you so much for opening up my eyes to, uh, to an experience I did not know existed in my community. Seeing that happen at every single screening it was like, it, it, it was all I ever could have wanted. It was to start that dialogue and start that conversation. It, it, and for me, you know, I, I recently made a, a Facebook post about this, but um, I've always wanted to believe films like have the power to like create real change beyond the screen. And I will be honest, I, I didn't know um, if that was like truly possible at all. It, it's something you know, that sounds really nice to believe, but I didn't know that was truly possible. And seeing people have this reaction and willing to take a step forward and open their hearts and have a dialogue, it proved to me what the power of cinema truly is. And that is to start real conversations, to start real change, because that's change happens really slowly, but it begins with one person at a time and it begins with one conversation at a time. And having these really intimate conversations in the Bad Axe Theater with my own community, I felt like that was that was a true step forward where we weren't looking at each other as being the other. We were just looking at each other as being part of fellow American, fellow community members. And that was that was so powerful for, for me to witness. And I'm so grateful for that. I mean, if you if you look at the you know if you remember the opening of the film with the big Trump sign and the Trump flags, I'll share that the woman who actually owns that texted my mom, uh, reached out to my mom on Facebook uh, over this past weekend, 
and she said the same exact thing. She says, while, while we don't, you know, we might not have the same politics. Um, I just want to let you know that I, I truly respect your family's rights to speak up and, and to have a voice. And I hope that we can still be friends uh, with each other. What more could you want? You know, um, awards and accolades are, they're exciting, but, but nothing comes close to, to that real, real dialogue that's happening in, in, in bad acts right now. Well, that's what a profound piece of art will do in the world. And I think that this film will live for a long, long time. And uh, I'm so grateful that you made it. And I'm going to share it with everyone I know. I think it's, you know, just it's indispensable viewing. And I can't wait to see um, what you do next. And I don't think I've ever said this to anybody on the podcast before. But I literally finished that film. And I thought anything I can ever do um, to... Uh, help facilitate support uh, that guy as an artist is something that I want to do because that's really putting, you know, good into the world. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. That, that means, that means the world to me. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, No, I've really, I've really enjoyed this conversation and, and uh, um, these conversations are are so important to have. and, And I'm glad that this film is, is beginning to do that. So thank you. Brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing your time today. Of course. Thank you for having me. Thank you to David Siv for sharing his time and his insight about making this beautiful film. And thank you to his father and his sister for allowing us to enter into their world. I'm Tiller Russell. See you next time on The Dangerous Art of the Documentary. The Dangerous Art of the Documentary is a Tillerman Films production. Executive producers are Tiller and Fitz. Our producer is Jacob Miller. Music by Zydapunk. The show is executive produced and distributed by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler for Double Elvis Productions. Thanks for listening, and please, don't forget to subscribe.